0: When I was young, I didn't properly understand the Cold War. Being brought up in Britain in the 80s, I would hear adults say things like, if it all starts, if it all kicks off, we'll be right in the middle of it. And I took that literally. Looking at a map of the world, I would see America on one side and the Soviet Union on the other. And I would see tiny little Britain right in the middle. And I would think the adults meant that literally. America will send bombs across, and Russia will send theirs across, and the bombs will collide in the middle and drop on our heads, so I assume Britain was right in the middle of it because of where we are on the map. But this episode is about West Germany, and how they prepared for nuclear war, and it's the poor West Germans who really were right in the middle of it. NATO's biggest worry, of course, in the Cold War was that the Warsaw Pact would invade Western Europe and they would perhaps begin that invasion, not in a nuclear manner, but by rolling their tanks across West Germany and into Western Europe. If that had happened, it wouldn't be impossible that NATO would have responded by firing tactical nuclear weapons at the advancing Warsaw Pact forces, So, of course, that means that West Germany would be attached with nuclear weapons from its own side, from NATO. And, of course, we might assume that the Soviets would retaliate. So, poor West Germany is in the middle, being nuked by both the West and the East. Even without nuclear weapons, if the war began as a conventional one, there was still NATO's scorched earth policy, which we'll look at later. So, West Germany really was going to have everything thrown at it. But despite being so utterly vulnerable, the West German government still took extensive measures to prepare itself and its people for nuclear war. The eternal argument there, of course, is were those preparations any good? And if you listen to this podcast, you'll know my opinion is generally no, because you can't defend yourself against the hydrogen bomb. But nonetheless, the government of West Germany made preparations, and uh, like Britain... They were helped in this by the legacy of the Second World War, as that had left them with plenty of old air raid shelters and underground factories which could be reopened, remodelled, strengthened and adapted into nuclear bunkers. And there was still, of course, the old air raid warning system. So in this episode we'll look at the bunkers created for West German government and the civilians, and we'll look at their public information campaign, called, and forgive my pronunciation, I don't know any German, Jeder hat ein chance, which translates as everybody has a chance, and like Britain's public information campaign Protect and Survive was widely ridiculed. So let's take a look at West Germany. During the Cold War, the capital of West Germany was obviously Bonn. Berlin lay in the east. And it was in the outskirts of Bonn that the Federal Republic would have sheltered their government. You'll know from my previous podcasts that the main concern in Britain, especially once the hydrogen bomb came along, was not how to save and succour the people. It was continuity of government, it was how do we keep the state going, how do we make sure government survives. And this principle was the same in West Germany. The government must survive, otherwise, can the state still claim to exist? And of course, if your state doesn't exist, then your enemy has won. I suppose at the end of a nuclear war, there's no point counting the casualties, we're talking millions and millions on either side. The numbers start being meaningless when we get that high. So one measure of victory, victory with quotation marks around it of course, is whose government is still there. So the West German government, in order to preserve continuity of government after nuclear war, used an old railway tunnel outside the city, which was formerly used by the Nazis to build V2 rockets. They expanded it hugely, so it became big enough to hold 3,000 people for up to one month. Let me just say here that my source for this is the book Underground Structures of the Cold War by Paul Ozerach. The West German government bunker was big enough to include not just the usual things such as offices, air filtration equipment, a broadcasting studio, a canteen and dormitories... But it also had a barber's and a chapel and nice little ashtrays nailed to the wall. Now I'm fascinated by these things. Office space of course, air filtration equipment that's all quite standard even, dare I say it, a bit dull but when we start talking about a nuclear bunker having a barber shop and a chapel, well that brings the human element into it and that is where my interest lies. Now The barber shop? Who on earth needs a barber's? The bunker would only be occupied for up to 30 days, so can't you just wait at least one month to have your hair trimmed? Who do you have to look neat for? Unless, of course, the barbers had a more sinister purpose. Perhaps this bunker was anticipating having to invite people who'd been perhaps caught in fallout, and so they'd have to be decontaminated, showered and shaved before being allowed access to the proper interior of the bunker. I've seen such a thing in a bunker in Budapest for that very purpose. Those who arrived at the bunker seeking shelter after the bomb had dropped, if by some miracle they'd survived, would have to go through a very rigorous decontamination process, and that involved being shoved into a barber's chair and having everything, everything shaved off. so we can assume that's why they had the initially what seems like the luxury of a barber shop. As for the chapel, well that that's endlessly fascinating. Uh, there's a nuclear bunker in Scotland outside the town of Anstruther which has a chapel. And when I first visited, I was a bit of a a newbie, I suppose, to this type of thing, and I was just bowled over by it. I was horrified. I sat there for oh god I don't know about 40 minutes or something just imagining what it would have been like to sit here at the little altar whilst the world ended above you but of course once I started to research this properly I realised the chapel isn't authentic and a tiny bit of research shows you that the chapel was installed in the bunker after it was purchased and made into a tourist attraction it's not there for tacky reasons. It's there to honour those who served and died in the service of their country in the Cold War, but the fact is it wasn't there during the Cold War. It wouldn't have been in use as a chapel if nuclear war had broken out. But according to this book, there was a chapel in the West German bunker. Even without an organised space in one of these bunkers designated as a chapel, it's not hard to imagine some people still indulging in silent or group prayer. Even the most hardened atheist might turn to prayer down in the bunker because war games, plans and projections all saw West Germany being hit and being hit hard. The NATO exercise, carte blanche, envisaged 268 atomic bombs being dropped on Germany alone. And what was particularly troubling was that these games and exercises often saw these nuclear attacks coming from their own side, from the NATO side. It was predicted that much of the nuclear explosions bombarding West Germany would be fired from NATO forces as a way of stopping the Red Army advancing across Western Europe. A later war game called Lion Noir saw 108 Western nuclear bombs hit West Germany, but only 20 from the Warsaw Pact side. So it would be West Germany's own allies, probably, who were hurting them the most, sacrificing them, I suppose you might say, for the rest of Western Europe. Warsaw Pact vastly outnumbered NATO in terms of tanks, so arguably the only way to halt them as they rolled across western Germany would be to liberally sprinkle some tactical nukes in their path. Indeed, the military writer Edelbert Weinstein, quoted here in the book Understanding the Imaginary War, said that the first major consequence of nuclear warfare would be to turn Germany into the main battlefields. Quoting from the same book, the Western Allies would extinguish the very country that had to be defended, Germany. There was also NATO's scorched earth policy. Again, this was done with the aim of stopping or slowing a Soviet advance across West Germany. This meant blowing up key roads and bridges. So whenever a new bridge was built in Cold War West Germany... It was built with its own demolition planned into it. These bridges had little compartments built into the structure where soldiers could, if it was deemed necessary, plant explosives so that the bridge could then be brought down and halt the Red Army advance. As for roads... There were often underground chambers where soldiers could stuff explosives and a detonator, again in a time of international tension when it seemed that war was inevitable. These chambers would be inspected twice a year by soldiers in civilian clothes who'd be driving around West Germany in anonymous little Volkswagen vans, making sure the chambers were clear and unobstructed so that a soldier could, if necessary, jam them full of explosives ready to blow up the road. And this went on until 1992. So, West Germany was going to be hit hard if the balloon went up. The anticipated severity of the attack was probably why the government's public information campaign, Jeder hat ein Chance, everybody has a chance, was ridiculed. Although, to be fair to the West German authorities, show me a nuclear war public information manual which hasn't been ridiculed. Unless the advice inside is, be a billionaire and head for New Zealand, then you're going to be mocked. Although this booklet had been prepared in the late 50s, it was the erection of the Berlin Wall which fired up tensions so much that the government decided to distribute it. And so, in October 1961, Everybody Has a Chance was sent to 16 million West German households. Now, that's a step further than Britain ever went. Our ridiculed Protect and Survive public information booklet was intended to be sent out if nuclear war threatened, as well as being printed in the newspapers and broadcast on TV and radio via short films. But who can blame West Germany for being a bit more jumpy? Being right in the middle of it all? Now, as the title suggests, Everybody Has a Chance... The booklet was generally optimistic, but again that's nothing new. A government aren't going to issue a booklet saying, we're done for, give up, surrender. We often um, mock these booklets, Protection and Survive for example is ruthlessly ridiculed, but to play devil's advocate, the government, as I say, couldn't just print the bare and bald truth, because that would be surrender and let the commies take over. <laughs> so. They probably weren't writing it out of sheer ignorance. They were writing it probably because their hands were tied. They had to give the impression that we could protect ourselves and survive. But back to West Germany. Everybody Had a Chance was sent out to all the households in 1961 and had a generally hopeful, optimistic tone. I haven't seen the whole booklet. I've only seen extracts online, so if anyone out there has a copy... I'd be very grateful if you could uh, send or email me a copy, even though I don't speak German. I would try and decipher it bit by bit through Google Translate, I suppose. But the extracts I've seen show that the booklet says that nuclear war is survivable if we're obedient and calm and resourceful. It gave instructions on building a fallout shelter at home. And it said if you were caught in the open when the bomb dropped... Then there were the obligatory illustrations suggesting you throw yourself to the ground, preferably into a ditch. There's always in these little pictures a handy ditch nearby where you can curl up. The book also shows a chap cowering beneath his briefcase. He doesn't state what the protection factor of a briefcase is. I've put some photos on my Twitter account of these pictures, so take a look at Julie A. McDowell on Twitter or it's also on my Facebook page, which is called Nuclear Britain. So they were saying that a briefcase might help shield you from the blast. But what of those members of the public who weren't carrying a fancy briefcase when the bomb dropped? How do they protect themselves from nuclear war? Well, if you haven't managed to build a makeshift shelter under the stairs or in your cellar and there's no ditch nearby and no expensive briefcase, you might try and grab a space at one of the public shelters. There were about 2,000 public shelters built across West Germany and these ranged from old air raid shelters from the war to metro stations to underground car parks and basements and apartment blocks. However, space was severely limited and was dished out on a first-come, first-served basis. The most famous of these public nuclear shelters these days is probably that at the Pankstrasse metro station. This one is now open as a museum, if you like. You can take guided tours through Pankstrasse. And it was common, of course, for countries with deep metro systems, I'm thinking of Moscow and Kiev particularly, to allow them to double as fallout shelters. Indeed, the deepest metro station in the world is in Kiev. It's called Arsenalna. And I visited that to try and get a feel for what it would be like as a fallout shelter. I'm sure we'll do a podcast on that in the future. But for now, let's look at the Pankstrasse station on the Berlin-U-Bahn. A lot of West Berlin's public shelters were, as I said, leftovers from the Second World War and were reinforced or expanded, such as the huge Blockplatz, which was an old shelter from the war. But the Pankstrasse station was relatively modern. It was built in 1977 as part of a U-Bahn extension, so it was shiny and new. The station is a perfectly normal station, seeing thousands of commuters every day, But there are doors in the wall, hidden doors, which, when opened, lead into a fallout shelter. So when the siren blared, people who were nearby were able to, in an orderly fashion, enter the Pankstrasse station. And once they had reached capacity, at the flick of a switch, huge blast doors would emerge from the wall sealing off the entrances and also sealing the tunnels. And behind the walls of the platform stand rows and rows of bunk beds where you'd be tucked to sleep at night under a paper blanket. No one's expecting a sound night's sleep in a nuclear bunker as the world ends above you, but paper blankets, come on. There was also a limited amount of toilets. It was estimated, with the 3,000 people in the bunker, that there'd be a two to three hour wait to use the loo. And, similar to the bunker I visited in Prague, and which is a podcast about, there were suicide deterrent measures in these toilets, in that the light fixtures couldn't hold an adult's weight, so you couldn't try and hang yourself from it. The mirrors in the toilets weren't made of glass, but of highly polished metal, so you couldn't break it and try and slit your wrists. And the toilet cubicles had no lockable doors, only shower curtains which could be pulled across the cubicle. So you couldn't hide yourself away and commit an act of self-harm or of suicide. It's even been suggested that it was deliberate, or at least desirable, that there was a two or three hour wait to use the toilet because that meant there would never be a moment where you could slip off to the loo, secrete yourself away and try and harm yourself because there would always be three hours worth of people saying, hurry up, come on, get out of there. There would never be any quiet or privacy down there. According to an article in Vice magazine, every entrant to the bunker would be required to strip, have a shower, and then be issued with a yellow polyester tracksuit. And the walls of the bunker were painted a mild pastel green shade that was apparently chosen for its soothing qualities. But what's soothing about enduring Armageddon in a bunker full of people in matching yellow trackies? There's some comfort then for the people of Britain, known in the Cold War as America's unsinkable aircraft carrier, and therefore a whopping huge target, that maybe we wouldn't have had it the worst after all. But then, no, I suppose it's better to go quickly in a nuclear war than hang around and suffer. On that cheery note, let me say that I've been made even cheerier this week by welcoming two new patrons to my podcast. There are now 47 people pledging some money each month to support my work, and I really am so grateful. If you want to support the podcast with a monthly pledge, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash atomichobo, where you can choose which level you want to contribute, and you can get a nuclear reward attached. Speaking of which, those who pay at the Castle Bravo level should have received their nuclear postcards by now. That's one of the rewards you can claim, uh, a postcard from every nuclear site I visit. And I'll scribble some uh, nuclear stories or facts on the back for you. And if you don't want to pay each month, you can make a one-off donation to the podcast by going to paypal.me forward slash Atomic Hobo. You'll notice this week that the podcast has some different music. This is from X them out on Twitter at XBandUK X being I X They got in touch thinking the music might suit the podcast because their stuff is quite dark and electronic and so might suit the mood of 1980s Cold War tension so let me know what you think But before I go let me give a special thanks to the following patrons Lucy Stegerwald Arika Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars, Jacqueline Brick, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Ewan McLeod, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge. Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone who supports the podcast, both with your money and with your support on Twitter or on Facebook, and of course by telling your friends if you enjoy it. Um, you could also support the podcast by leaving me a, a review on wherever you listen to this: iTunes, SoundCloud, Google. Um, but thank you everyone for supporting and I'll be back next Sunday with another podcast bye for now